We do not live with anticipation of what might happen, but with conviction in something that will happen. We have rock-solid confidence that what Jesus has promised will come true because of what Jesus has already secured for us in his resurrection. Our hope is one of patient expectation and not one of wishful thinking. We do not worry with our fingers crossed. Instead, we rest confident with our eyes lifted high. Now, at Riverside, our sermons on Sundays are marked by taking a portion of the Bible, explaining it just as clearly as we can, and then applying its message to our lives in our day. And today, we are going to consider this small portion of the Bible, which is all about Christian hope. And I pray, and I have been praying, that you will leave here today with the same rock-solid certainty over what Jesus has done for you as I have found in my life. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5 through 5, begins by directing us to praise God. Notice it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This frequently used word, blessed, in this sense, is simply a synonym for praise. Or, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is similar to how the people of God have commonly expressed their worship to him throughout the Bible. For instance, in the book of Psalms, chapter 113, verse 2, it says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist wants the name of the Lord to be praised for all days. It's an expression of praise. Well, why does this passage tell us to praise God? Well, verse 1 tells us that it's because of his great mercy. Mercy is really just kindness toward those in need who often are so very undeserving of mercy. But God, it says, has shown great mercy. In fact, God has shown an extraordinary, even an unfathomable level of mercy towards his needy people here. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in Ephesians 2 verse 4 when he says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So God has a great love for which he loves his people, and as a result, he has poured out on them a rich, great mercy. Now, as I read this passage, I think that Peter, the apostle who wrote this letter, I think he gives us three reasons to praise God for his mercy. And we're going to consider each of these reasons briefly this morning. First reason why God should be praised for his mercy is that he has caused the dead and hopeless to be alive and hopeful. He has caused the dead and the hopeless to be alive and hopeful. Look at verse 3 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has caused his people, it says, to be born again. Now let's be honest. 
this term, born again, it gets thrown around an awful lot in our day, doesn't it? And often it's pretty misunderstood. To be born again, as the Bible relates it, refers to the spiritual rebirth of those who place their trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. The Son of God who was sent to save his sinful, needy people. It involves an inner transformation of the person through the Spirit of God himself in their lives, leading them to believe in Jesus, whereby their sins are forgiven against God and they are provided a new and eternal life with God. So God interacts spiritually in their hearts, enabling them to believe they're forgiven, they're saved, and they have a relationship with God. That's what it is to be reborn. Or as Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, when he answered the man Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, born from above, transformed by God above, one will never see the kingdom of God, which is another way to say heaven. Which means that unless one is spiritually reborn, they cannot believe in Jesus, they cannot be forgiven of their sins, and they cannot have eternal life in God's kingdom when it comes. Jesus says a couple of verses later in John 3, verse 6, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So being born, again, is different than one's fleshly birth. When you and I were born, we were physically born with physical bodies, having physical flesh. But when one is born again by God, that person is reborn spiritually through the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. It is a mystery. God does it. He accomplishes it. In fact, notice verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It is God who causes this rebirth. It is God who makes one born again. And when he does this, he is displaying his incredible mercy by saving an undeserving, needy sinner like me. Now, this is not something that we are able to do ourselves. Because, of course, it is God who causes this rebirth. Paul says to another pastor later on named Titus in the letter to Titus, chapter 3, verse 5, that God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So out of God's own mercy, and not because they have done anything good themselves, he saved his precious though undeserving people by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration, it means that God cleanses his people of their sinful defilement against him when they are reborn or regenerated in their hearts through faith in Christ. And by renewal of the Spirit, it means that God has made his people new on the inside, enabling them to grow in spiritual and moral goodness to become more and more like God in one's character and words and actions. 
So once again, this rebirth is all brought about by God himself in his loving mercy towards his people. And God's people are born again, verse 3 says, to a living hope. I love that little term, living hope. This is not a hope marked by words like might or could or possibly or maybe. No, this is a hope that is marked by certainty because the object of this hope is alive and not dead. What God's people enjoy, those born again by God himself, is a living hope because our hope is bound together with the living God. And he has made alive so his people have certain hope that they will be made alive just like him. Notice verses 18 through 20 in 1 Peter. If you're there, look over just a few verses later, verses 18 through 20, and see what Peter says later. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed, which means paid for, purchased. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Get this. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. My friends, Jesus Christ, as we talked about on Friday night, Good Friday, Jesus Christ actually shed his blood to pay for you. God did not pay for your sins by giving gold or silver or any other such things. No, the only way God could pay for your sins, that the God whom you sinned against could pay for your sins out of love, is to have his only son Jesus come to earth and he take the punishment for your sins shedding his blood on the cross in your place and in my place so that all your sins are paid for and washed away. For as we talked about on Friday, they are blotted out. And then, after three days later, as verse 21 says, this Jesus was raised from the dead and he was given glory so that now, if we put our faith in Jesus, our faith and our hope are in God, the risen God. And who is this God? He is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Who is this Jesus? He is the resurrected king who was once crucified for our sins. My friend, if you don't know this God, if you don't know his son Jesus, if you have not known the work of the Spirit in your life, let me implore you today, turn from your sin, embrace Jesus in faith, and you will be saved. Our living hope was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what the last part of verse 3 says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Christian hope is bound together with the living God who already defeated death at the cross and will raise his people from the dead even as he has raised Jesus from the dead already. So get this, through Christ's past resurrection, the Christians, me and all of you who know Christ, the Christians' future resurrection has been made certain. Certain, not a possibility, an absolute certainty. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you know why it says that Jesus in his resurrection was the first fruits? Because after the first fruits comes the second fruits, and the third fruits, and the fourth fruits, and the four billionth fruit. All of those who know Jesus Christ, who are in him in faith, they too will rise from the dead, just as Jesus rose from the dead. And now, our hope rests upon and is made certain by none other than this Jesus Christ himself. So my friends, our happy hope hangs upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One day... Jesus is going to come back to earth. He promises that. And all of those born-again believers who previously died in their physical bodies, along with all of those living believers who are still alive at his coming, they will all be raised up with new, perfected bodies. Listen to what Paul says, first, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 for the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It was eight years ago this morning that my mom entered eternity. That's sad, and I miss her. But my mom, many years before I was even born, put her trust in Jesus Christ alone. She was reborn through the work of the Spirit. And I know that when Jesus comes again, my mom will be raised first. And then he says, in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. He's going to bring them up. And he says so even more specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, when Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Body sown in dishonor is going to be raised in honor. Imperishable bodies put into the ground will be raised imperishable, just like Jesus Christ was raised imperishable. God has caused the dead and the hopeless to be alive and hopeful. So if you know Jesus, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, my friends, live in hopeful expectation of what will certainly come your way through Christ. And if you don't know him, 
May today be the day of salvation where you say in your hearts, sin has been my enslaver. I don't want it to enslave me anymore. God in Jesus is my savior and I want him to save me forevermore. May that be true of you today. The second reason why God should be praised for his mercy is that he is preserving a perfect inheritance for his people. Look at verse 4. 1 Peter 1 verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God the Father has an inheritance for his spiritual children. Now, as you know, an inheritance is some prized possession given by parents to their kids. It could be a monetary estate, it could be a home, it could be jewelry, it could be a car. In some parts of the world, inheritance can include royal titles, which are passed from one generation to the next. But the inheritance given by God to his spiritually reborn children is far greater than any inheritance which could be found on this earth. No amount of money could match it, and no royal title could ever compete with it. Ephesians 1.18 calls it a glorious inheritance. Colossians 3 verse 24 describes it as a reward. Ephesians 5 verse 5 explains this inheritance as taking part in the kingdom of Christ, the heaven where Christ reigns. And Hebrews 9 verse 15 tells us that this inheritance is an eternal one. My friends, the Christian's inheritance is their perfect and eternal salvation in a perfect and eternal place with their perfect and eternal God. Now, we don't know many things about this glorious inheritance because much will gloriously be revealed to us on that day. But we do know that this inheritance is marked by perfection. Look at how Peter describes it in verse 4. He says it, first of all, is imperishable. So it is impervious to the corruption of death. In other words, we will never lose our place in this inheritance. It will never die off, leaving us worse off than we were before. This inheritance with Jesus in the place that he has created for his people will never be destroyed, but will forever be enjoyed by those who have been born again to this living hope. It will never cease. It will never go away. God will never tire of us or our place in his kingdom. It will last forever. Secondly, he says that it is also undefiled, meaning that nothing impure is in any way associated with this inheritance, for it is pristine, it is perfect in its innate goodness and in its moral quality. The Christian will not receive this inheritance and then say, you know, this is really, really nice, and I really like this and that about this, but I wonder if it could be a little better in some ways. Nor will anyone ever be tempted to say, you know, I actually envisioned something a little bit nicer. 
There will be, my friends, no imperfections in the Christian's eternity with God. There will be no sin, no defects, no weakness, and nothing will be missing. And Peter then says that this inheritance is unfading. So it will never lose its perfect luster or quality. So after 10,000 years of being there, the Christian's, in, the Christian's eternal inheritance will not need a good old-fashioned spring cleaning. There will not be a need to remodel it or to refashion it. For everything in it will be as pure and as wonderful as on the first day that the kingdom was entered in. And our relationship with King Jesus will never grow stale, but will only cause us to ever bask in his constant, unending delights. And our abode with him will never bore us, but will leave us fully satisfied to the brim of our cup with it pouring over that will be the inheritance of God's people. This inheritance, it will be perfect. And this perfect inheritance is made certain by its protector. Notice the end of verse 4. It says, kept in heaven for you. This word kept, it needs very little explanation. It is to hold something as safe, to preserve something or protect something. What God is keeping, what he is holding safe, preserving, and protecting is the heavenly inheritance of his born-again children. Now, I appreciate how the Apostle Paul describes this keeping. He says in Colossians 1 verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This term laid up is to lay up something in store. It's to put it away safely in preservation for a later time. It's, it's in his storage room. He's got it guarded. Because the perfect, all-powerful God is keeping this inheritance. It is a certainty that it will be enjoyed by his children. So my friends... Our living hope is a cause of wondrous joy even now. Christians have been promised a perfect gift by the God who not only never lies, but is perfect in his capacity to bring all of his promises about. The Christian then rests confident in the fact that his or her hope will be Look with me at verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though we do not yet see Jesus and have not yet experienced our full inheritance, our hope leads us to love him, believe in him, and rejoice with inexpressible joy as we seek to glorify him. Because the down payment has been put into our hearts. The relationship we have with God and this down payment will be realized in a full inheritance on the day that we enjoy him fully in his presence forever. Now our third reason why God should be praised for his mercy 
is that he is guarding believers for their future salvation. He is guarding believers for their future salvation. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding his children with omnipotent power. I wonder, do we grasp the infinite, matchless, perfect power of the God who once made us? Jeremiah 32 verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God's power is perfect, unlimited power. And God uses his power to guard his children. Who by God's power are being guarded, verse 5. This word guarded in the original Greek language, if you don't know, you may have an English translation of your Bible, but the New Testament, the second half, was originally written in Greek and has been translated into English for us to be able to read God's word. A wonderful blessing. But in the original Greek word, that word guarded, it's actually a word that's a very vivid military term used in military context quite often. Referring to soldiers being secured or protected like a fortress defending those behind its walls. Well here, God in his matchless power, like an impregnable citadel, is guarding his people. And the instrument, the instrument of God's power is Christian faith. It says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. When God causes a person to be born again and spiritually transforms that person's heart, their hearts are made into hearts of faith. These are hearts that now trust him, they rely upon him, and they even cling to him throughout all of the many circumstances of life. These are hearts that trust Jesus to forgive them of sin's penalty. These are hearts that trust Jesus to deliver them from sin's enslavement. And these are hearts that trust Jesus to empower them to live holy lives in expectation of his coming kingdom. These reborn hearts are marked by faith. And God preserves his people in faith until the very end when their inheritance is received. Because places like Psalm 37 verse 28 say that the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. God doesn't let his saints go. He preserves them forever. Or as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, the God who began to work in us through his spirit is the God who continues to work through us in his spirit 
the God who never abandons his work on us in his spirit, and the God who will bring to completion his work in us through his spirit. God guards his people. He never lets his true faithful people go from him. And understand, understand, my friends, and this gets to a little bit of what we sang earlier and even what Drew said a little while ago. Understand that God will even test his people's faith so as to affirm and strengthen it. He will even test their faith so as to affirm and strengthen their faith. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows challenges to come into your life and mine. He even allows his people to face experiences of suffering because in that suffering and in those challenges, God uses it to refine us and make us stronger. He actually uses challenge and suffering and trial to make his people's faith be stronger faith. Because the God who guards us to the end is the, guard, the God who strengthens our faith until the end. Think about that the next time the car breaks down. Think about that the next time the illness comes. Think about that when pain comes to your body. The full salvation of believers will one day be realized by their protector God. Because verse 5 says, It is guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation spoken of here is the final salvation which all believers will enjoy on the day they receive their full inheritance from God. Understand, my friends, God's salvation is both accomplished and it is being accomplished. It is both finalized and it is ongoing. Christians are actually both saved in the past tense and they are being saved in the present tense. The writer to Hebrews, Hebrews 9 verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christ came once to pay for our sins. His spirit is now helping us in this world through faith, and he will come again and he will perfect what he has started. And those who eagerly wait for him will receive their full salvation. Now our takeaway at this is trust. Our takeaway at this is trust. Since trust and faith and reliance and belief and hope are so important, we must therefore set our minds to strengthening our faith, our trust. And there are, my friends, two clear-cut ways to strengthen our faith. Number one, we strengthen our faith by seeing God's majesty and God's promises in his word. While responding to him by pouring out our hearts in prayer. 
You want to build up your faith? You want to be stronger in your trust in God? The way to do that is to see and hear and read the words of God, the majesty of God on display, meditating upon the promises of God as they are laid out for you. And as a result, God uses that with his spirit to make you sturdy, able to handle the challenges of life. That's the first thing he does to strengthen our faith. Secondly, our faith is strengthened by seeing God's hand and his good purpose in our sufferings. While also responding to them by pouring out our hearts to him in prayer. He uses his word, but he also uses affliction to help us see how desperately we need to him. And to go to him like a little child that's lost, crying out for dad. Where are you dad? I need you. He strengthens our trust in him by allowing us to face challenge here on earth. It is God's good way, though it hurts. And if we will respond in faith by pouring out our hearts to him in prayer, when those moments come, our faith, our faith will be strengthened. So I have three final statements I want to make to you, and then we're done. Number one, through Jesus... You can be alive and hopeful. Through Jesus, you can be alive and hopeful. And I plead with you today. Understand, my friend, that you, like me, are a sinner. And that you have rebelled against a holy God, the one who made you. And that you deserve his judgment. And he will judge you. And it will be a, an eternal, lasting misery and separation from him. That is what hell is. In eternal misery, in separation from God. But God, out of love, sent Jesus to you to die on the cross and to rise again out of love for you. And if you will turn from your sin and embrace Jesus in faith, Jesus, I trust you. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. Help me not to walk according to the sinful path. Help me now to walk according to your path. If you will trust him as your Savior and your Lord, you are born again. You have been forgiven. You do have new life. Your inheritance is made sure. If your faith is in Christ alone. Secondly, through vigilant hope, you can find joy in the midst of sorrow. We come here today, we had a big breakfast, we sang some very big songs with a lot of praise and celebration, but we're not so foolish to think that you don't come here just like we do, with a lot of difficulty. Relationships aren't adding up, work's not what it seems to be, your body seems to be falling apart, your friend you love is hurting, the one who you love dearly is not in you come here today with all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of afflictions and sufferings. But through vigilant hope, you can find joy in the midst of sorrow. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something that you come out on one particular Sunday and worship God for, but it is the heart of the message that, that, that you build your life around. Oh, my friend, that even in the midst of all of that suffering, you can find a joy, you can find peace, you can find rest. You can have enduring, certain hope. And then third, through patient trust, your full resurrection will be realized. If you trust God to the end, 
at the end, the inheritance will be yours. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're better than anybody else. It means that because you trust God and you're seeing him work through your faith in him, if you trust God until the end, your full resurrection and your inheritance will be realized. I'm not talking about those who believe for a little while because it sounds good and that's the easy thing to do in American culture and then they drop off after a little while and do the thing they really want to worship. I'm talking about those who see the beauty of the gospel and what God has done for you and you embrace him and you hold him until the end knowing that he is holding you until the end. My friend, if that's you, your inheritance is true and you will have it. Let that hope drive you through this day as you eat your ham and open the eggs and spend time with your family. And finally today, I ask you to live in hope because your hope is in the one who lives. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. You've done so much. So rich in mercy and grace are you. We could never repay, and yet, Lord, we worship you. So grateful that we have a God like you. Help us, we pray, Lord, to have hearts that are convicted by the Spirit, that, Lord, will not, not go away from here different than when we came, but that, Lord, we will be satisfied in your Son, the crucified and resurrected one, who is our Savior and Lord. Help us, we pray, to live in light of a certain hope in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name.